0: What's up, team? Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, good night. Whatever time you are listening to this, thank you for tuning in. My name is Arneet Singh, and this is the async Podcast. Welcome in. Uh, and we're just doing an audio one. We're not going to go for the video. We're just going to go audio in a big... Big, big shout out to my buddy Harrison in New Zealand, who gifted me a Blue Yeti microphone way back when, and is the reason that I can do this with much cleaner audio than I otherwise could. So Harrison Gulliver, you to man, I love your brother forever. Um, I wanted to tell a story. I'm not going to just rant about stuff this time. I actually sat down, thought about it, and wrote something out for all of you guys to partake in or listen to. Uh, If you're not a sports fan, that's okay. I know you saw the title of the podcast. Uh, It's still something that I think a lot of people would end up investing in uh, just listening to it. Along with telling the story, I also saw a lot of similarities in the way that we're dealing with quarantine and the pandemic in terms of grief and uh, a sense of loss that really is kind of it's the same parallels run with the story that I'm about to tell. It really is just a sense of shock and disbelief and everything going so well and everything everything seeming to go so well and then fall apart not because of anything that we've done to make that happen but because for whatever reason it was the will of the universe and we don't have any say over it. And for that reason And I think just because it has such an effect, it had such an effect on me growing up, and because telling the story also tells a little bit about me so you guys can get to know me and where I come from, how my feelings run, um, I thought it was a really important story to tell. So without further ado, here we go. Now, the majority of you who know me have at some point been audience to the whitewater rapids of love, hate, passion, pride, and sometimes all of them simultaneously, that I have for the great American sport of competitive roller derby. No, I'm kidding, obviously, because roller derby is not a game for the faint of heart, and I'm completely ill-equipped to handle the stress of a sport played by Titans. Go derby dolls. No, of course, I'm talking about my great love of American football, and more specifically, The Seattle Seahawks and on this episode I wanted to talk about one of the most important joyous and personally tragic events in NFL history Super Bowl 49 now as soon as I mentioned that number the entire Seahawks fan base's heart sank to say this was a cataclysmic moment for all fans of football would be an understatement And not just for the participating teams when the seahawks lost to the new england patriots that night on february 1st of the year 2015 something happened within the hearts of thousands of human beings directly and indirectly involved in the game from coaches and players down to the fans and friends of those diehards something exploded within all of us and depending on which side you were on that explosion healed you or gravely wounded you in a place in your heart you didn't know you could be touched by sports and if all of this sounds dramatic, then you're just starting to scratch the surface of the emotions that ran and still run through the veins of all of those who were witness to the simultaneous horror and euphoria that night in Glendale, Arizona. Now to understand why this is such a critical juncture in sports time, you have to understand the sport, the stories of both teams leading up to the game and how they came together to clash. And to figure all of that out, Let's start with me. I have been a fan since I was 12 years old. It's kind of my longest relationship, aside from my family and next door neighbors. The Seahawks and I have been through all of the ups and downs of an actual relationship. The honeymoon period, the lows of differences in opinions and perceived failures. Sometimes letting our gazes linger on other teams and players when we start to doubt that it'll all work out. And the highs of investing our time, love and effort in the right things and building to success together. Now, that all sounds like I'm taking a lot of the credit for the Seahawks and their more recent success. That's because I am. I have a superstition that if I don't have my jersey on before game time and leave it on until the game clock hits zero, regardless of the score, they'll lose. Also, if I'm not tapping a table with my left thumb right before a play starts, it's going to fail or we end up turning the ball over. I swear that's the secret to our success, and you can quote me on that. Now, I first fell in love with the Seahawks in 2005. I was 12 years old, in sixth grade, and yearned to fit in with my more sports-savvy friends. I remember one of my friends, Arjun, for some reason being a die-hard Philadelphia Eagles fan. He wasn't from the city. As far as I know, he'd never visited, and to my recollection, had never used the word John. But periodically, he'd wear his impeccable dark green Donovan McNabb jersey. I remember loving the look of it and thinking about having a jersey of my own. That year, 2004, the Eagles just happened to make it to the Super Bowl and were facing off against none other than the New England Patriots. My classmates were all making tiny bets with their pocket change on who would win, and the majority of them were betting on New England. Unbeknown to me, the Patriots were the defending Super Bowl champions and had already won two titles in three years. The first of those wins had come against a juggernaut St. Louis Rams team in 2001 and had hotwire wire ignited the legend of their young quarterback. Michigan alumni and underappreciated late round draft pick, Tom Brady. I had no idea about football in its recent history, let alone Tom terrific. And being a believer in underdog stories, I bet beg on the Eagles, who went on to lose to those Patriots. Tom Brady's legacy five years into his NFL career had already been cemented. Now, when I asked my mom for an advance on my $20 allowance to pay off my first gambling debt, her first question was, seriously, $20? Her second question was, why would you root for the Eagles? You're not from Philadelphia. Why don't you like the Seahawks? My pride didn't let me admit that I didn't even know Seattle had a football team. Me, being the information-hungry nerd that I already was at that age, I started doing my homework. The Seahawks up to 2005 hadn't done much in their 28 years of existence. They had only won their division three times, finished with more wins than losses less than half of the seasons they'd played, and hadn't even played in a Super Bowl. The Seahawks were well, they weren't good. And my interest in the Eagles wasn't wavering, especially with Argent continuously in my ear about how Donovan McNabb was the best quarterback in the league, blah, 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 blah. To be fair, I didn't know any better. So I just assumed he was right. It was later that I would find out he was so terribly desperately wrong. So despite their championship failure in 2004, I stayed an Eagles fan. That was until next year when Seattle came alive. The team finished 13 and three and I became a fanatic. Their offense, made up of quarterback Matt Hasselback, receiver Daryl Jackson, future Hall of Famer left tackle Walter Jones, and three-time Pro Bowl running back Sean Alexander, was taking defenses down left and right. And on a snowy Monday night football game, the Hawks took down the mighty Philadelphia Eagles in Philly, 44 to zero. Zip, zilch, see you later. It was an historic shutout. The largest on Monday Night Football to that point in history, I was sold and the Seahawks were my team. No one could tell me otherwise ever again. But that season was also the first sports heartbreak I would ever experience. The Seahawks on a tear through the playoffs reached Super Bowl 40 and came to face the Pittsburgh Steelers at Ford Field in Detroit, Michigan. I was ready for a great game, a big win and the start of a Patriots-esque dynasty what i didn't know and other seahawks hopefuls and fans more tortured than myself by a long history of losing knew all too well was how the game could and eventually would end but the way we got there no one could have predicted time after time during that game massive chunk yard plays big throws and long runs down the field were flagged and pushed back by bill levy and his officiating crew for more than questionable penalties while also making even more questionable no calls that changed the complexion of the game. A pass interference call on receiver Daryl Jackson in the end zone that nullified a would-be touchdown. A quarterback scramble by Steelers quarterback Ben Roethlisberger called a touchdown despite replay footage, clearly showing him being short of the goal line and other decisions throughout the game made Super Bowl 40 infamous as one of the worst officiated games in Super Bowl history. To say the Steelers were undeserving of the win would be unfair, but the seeds of doubt and frustration had already begun to sow themselves into little Arnit's heart. I still haven't forgiven Levy, his crew and the Steelers for that highway robbery. That season and every good miraculous thing that Seahawks team did meant nothing anymore. The joy was lost. Regardless, I continued to root for my hometown team. The years that followed were up and down, with two more good, if not great, seasons in which we went to the playoffs but ultimately couldn't reach the promised land. Two incredibly depressing seasons that marked the end of the era of longtime head coach Mike Holmgren, as well as a short-lived stint with a certain Jim Mora Jr., and on top of that, not a lot of hope. The players that had made the 2005 team great were, for the most part, gone by 2009. Players like Sean Alexander, Daryl Jackson, Walter Jones linebacker Lofa Tatupu, Hall of Fame offensive guard Steve Hutchinson, defensive back Marcus Trufant, and defensive tackle Rocky Bernard, were all either retired on their last legs or had found themselves homes with new teams. The only real holdover, Hasselbeck, was on and off the injury list and was no longer a reliable starting quarterback in a sport where that position can make or break a franchise. On top of that, the Seahawks front office brass hadn't done a great job of drafting new talent. Horrible even so the roster was pretty barren, but everything changed When the fire nation attacked, I'm sorry I had to you can't start a sentence with but everything changed without finishing it Last airbender style anymore. By the way, if you haven't seen that show What the hell are you doing? And how could that possibly be better than doing whatever it is that you could you are doing right now? This is the greatest animated series of all time fight me in the comments on that Bojack fans fight me, but I digress everything changed for the Seahawks in 2010. When owner Paul Allen hired former USC and ironically former New England Patriots head coach, Pete Carroll to coach Seattle. The fortunes of the franchise were about to reverse. If you had even a small modicum of football knowledge at that time, you'll know the following names. Russell Wilson, Marshawn Beast Mode Lynch, Richard Sherman, the Legion of Boom. These are all names of players and units of the Seahawks that came to define the team and their swaggery prowess in the early 2010s. Thanks to Carroll and his defensive coaches, Seattle fielded the toughest and stingiest NFL defense the league had seen in years. The Legion of Boom, the name the Seahawks secondary defensive unit gave themselves, were the scariest group of defenders to go up against on Sundays. And Lynch was the heartbeat, the muscle, the steaming engine that made the offense rumble over opponents. 2010 to 2015 with that squad was a good time to be a Hawks fan. It still is, but that period was special. In 2010 my family moved to new zealand a culture shock of all sorts for all of us and the only thing that kept me tethered to my old life aside from my old friends in redmond was the seahawks it was a tough seven years having to wake up at 6 and 7 a.m on monday mornings to catch the first group of games and hope the scheduling gods had been kind enough to give me an early afternoon seattle game but i did it and it was for the love of the team every monday i woke up and did the thing I even organized my budget to fit in the exorbitant costs of NFL Game Pass on a barista wage in 2013. We went 13-3 and three in the regular season. For those three games we lost, I was at work and couldn't wear my jersey. Therefore, we lost those three games. That's just how the universe of sports works. And my superstitions are far from the weirdest you're ever gonna hear or see. And that's the level of fandom that exists in me for the Hawks. And the highs of my fandom of the Seahawks started to hit their apex in that 2013 season when we took down challenger after challenger fought through a legendary NFC Championship game against the San Francisco 49ers to earn our ticket to the Super Bowl, the first time we have since 2005, and only the second time in team's history since our inception in 1976. And when we got there, we took no prisoners. Our number one ranked defense, the Legion of Boone, led by surefire future Hall of Famers Earl Thomas and Richard Sherman against the number one ranked offense of the Denver Broncos, led by surefire future Hall of Famer Peyton Manning. Denver was no match. In a game touted as Goliath versus Goliath, the Seahawks won decisively by 35 points, which is five full touchdowns in difference, putting the league on notice that no matter what players or coaches we lost in the off season, the Hawks were here to stay for a long time. It was the pinnacle of Seahawks football. Now let's go back for a second. We are forgetting the second half of the equation of the story, the New England Patriots. To non football fans everywhere, you know who Tom Brady is. You may even know who Bill Belichick, the longtime head coach, is. And you should, because these two are the most winning coach player combination in NFL history. But between their Super Bowl win over Philadelphia and the 2013 season, they oddly couldn't get over the hump. Despite having already won three Super Bowls together in four years, the Patriots seemingly couldn't catch a break for the next 11. Sure, when you win your division every year except for once in 10 years, it's not exactly a failure. But when the expectations are so much higher than any other team, you have to produce. And in those 10 years, here's what went down and didn't meet the quota for their fans or the league year by year. They lost in the divisional round to the Broncos in 2005, lost in the AFC Championship game to the eventual champion Colts in 2006, went 16-0, first time anybody had ever done that, but lost the Super Bowl to the Giants in an historic upset in 2007. They missed the playoffs in 2008, lost in the wildcard round to the Ravens in 2009, upset by the Jets, their divisional rivals in the divisional round in 2010, lost another Super Bowl to the Giants, all hailed the Patriot killer Eli Manning in 2011, lost the AFC championship game to the Ravens in 2012, and lost the AFC championship to the Broncos in 2013, who we soundly defeated in the Super Bowl. Go Seahawks. In all that time, and all that relative success, one thing stood out that was held against the Pats. No Super Bowl wins. With the attention spans of humans getting shorter and shorter, the Patriots' regime and Brady Belichick were looked at as washed up and unable to hit that final gear of speed and power to win another championship. Now it wasn't untrue, but it also was. The Pats simply didn't have the luck or timing that they had before. They faced quarterbacks making the leap at the right time, their strategies and weaknesses were finally being picked apart after years of study, and their roster was being turned over as it happens for all teams over time. The Patriots handled transition better than any other franchise in history, but the question at this point was never whether they were able to handle the transition, but rather that they could be a greater dynasty than those past. Like the Green Bay Packers of the 60s, who won five. The Steelers of the 70s, who won four. The 49ers of the 80s, who won four. The answer up until 2013 was no. Brady's time had come and gone, they said. And Belichick couldn't construct a roster to win the big one anymore. Nothing would be able to cool off the haters and naysayers of the legacies of Belichick and Brady, except for another Super Bowl. For both the Seahawks and the Patriots, a year to remember was coming. 2014 began with both teams beginning the year slow. The Seahawks defending champions coming into that year were still strong and unbreakable on defense, and their third-year quarterback, Wilson, was taking the next step into becoming the player the Seahawks would center their offense around in a couple of years, while Beast Mode continued to mow opponents down with reckless abandon. Meanwhile, the Patriots continued to win games on their way to a fifth straight division title and 10th and 11th seasons. In terms of what we knew of the past three to four years, the season was progressing par for the course. Most experts predicted that the Seahawks and Patriots would meet in the Super Bowl. I was geared up for another run. I was ready. And I was not alone. I picked up any NFL and ESPN news articles that even mentioned the Seahawks and their chances of becoming a dynasty. The rule of thumb in the NFL for years has always been that defenses win championships. The reason for that is, if your offense fails, your defense is your plan A, B, and C. If you can't score, you better make sure the other team doesn't, So no matter how strong or weak your offense is, your defense should be a stalwart. That's why the Seahawks won so handily in the Super Bowl the year before, and this defense was returning all of its key players. Bear in mind, the average age of the Seahawks roster was under 29 years old in 2014, and the core was strong with developing players. The same could be said for the Patriots. No matter what the talent, Tom Brady can make any receiver look good, and that he did. They had the greatest tight end of all time, Rob Gronkowski, in the prime of his career, catching passes and scoring touchdowns at a terrifying clip. Their receiver, Julian Edelman, an undrafted nobody, was quickly becoming Brady's go-to target, and their defense, led by linebacker Donta Hightower and free safety Devin McCourty, was becoming stronger as the season went along, which helped the team finish 12-4 on the season. The Seahawks, likewise, finished 12-4, and both teams headed into the playoffs with only two games to play to reach the Super Bowl that year. The Patriots did it with relative ease, winning a close game against the Ravens and then demolishing the Colts 45-7 to earn their ticket in for the first time since 2011. The Seahawks, on the other hand, had a windier road. They beat the Carolina Panthers at home handily in the first round, but then faced league MVP quarterback Aaron Rodgers and the Green Bay Packers in the NFC Championship, a game in which Russell Wilson threw four interceptions and nearly lost the game. However, after some trickery and the most jaw-dropping comeback in championship game history, Wilson uncorked. Uh, You know what? I'm not going to bury the lead. I'm just going to take you through it. Here's what I remember about watching that game at my buddy Tyler's house. Despair as the Packers went up 16 points. A little tipsy-daisy waxing poetic on a lost Seattle season. A spark of happiness with a fake field goal that turned into a touchdown pass to a rather large offensive lineman for the Hawks. More warm hope washing over me as Marshawn Lynch ran, busted 20 yards into the end zone to bring the score within five points. Pure euphoria when Wilson tossed a pass across his body and across the width of the field to tight end Luke Wilson for a necessary two point conversion after a touchdown. Uncontainable elation when we converted an onside kick into one more possession to kick a field goal and take the lead over the Packers. And then the Packers kicked their own field goal and sent the ball into overtime. What happened next is the stuff that only movies can dream up. With less than three minutes gone in overtime, Wilson uncorked a bomb of a pass to receiver Jermaine Curse for the game-winning touchdown, punching their boarding passes to Arizona to play the Patriots. That final deep ball from Wilson to Curse to end the game, I still remember going back and watching that play over and over again, dissecting Wilson's vision and timing to see Curse so quickly zipping past the Packers' defender to the end zone and hitting him so perfectly in stride, as we've seen Wilson do so many times in his career to this point, that it simply assumed the pass will get there every time. At that point, though, it was a miracle listening to the Seattle crowd at CenturyLink Field roar when Curse caught the ball. Wilson, Hearing Joe Buck the call the play and say, Seattle's going to the Super Bowl! Jermaine Kirst. And my memory of jumping off Tyler's couch and sliding like a soccer player after a goal on the carpet with unbelieving joy, are some of my favorite memories from that season. I still remember going on YouTube just to watch that play happen all over again, scrubbing back over and over again on the timeline of the video, just to feel it all one more time. That's the magic of sports. Without getting too poetic before the meat of this story, there's a euphoria that simply can't be described without helplessly losing the true feeling of victory being pulled out from the jaws of defeat. It's the kind of happiness that only the girl of your dreams saying yes to marrying you or the birth of your first child can compare. That's what I assume it would feel like. It's the culmination of all of your investment of emotion, faith, and determination in victory. And that's irreplaceable. All of those feelings steamed us through a two-week wait for the big game. And during those two weeks, chaos still found a way to matriculate into the news cycle. I would be remiss if I didn't mention the more scandalous side of Patriots history. The team was penalized in 2007 for having taped the defensive signals of the New York Jets during a week one game, that was the same year they went undefeated and lost in the Super Bowl. There's also the controversy of whether or not they taped the walkthrough practice of the St. Louis Rams in the weeks leading up to their Super Bowl victory over the Rams in 2001. This time, however, it was a scandal that came from their most recent win over the Colts. Colts Brass, and more specifically their owner, Jim Ursay, complained to the League of Offices that the Patriots had underinflated the footballs using the AFC Championship game. Doesn't seem that crazy, right? Except this was the Patriots being accused. And right or not, when you have a history of cheating, the claims are scrutinized more closely. Story after story criticizing the Patriots for their role in what was being called deflate-gate. Yet another overuse of the suffix gate to identify a scandal not nearly on the scale of Watergate. That's for another podcast. This was both a boon and a concern for me as a Seahawks fan. Because on one hand I thought, great, they're gonna get distracted, here we go dynasty. But the other side of me was saying, well, look how 2007 turned out when they went undefeated and almost won the Super Bowl. I was hesitant to anoint the Seahawks and say everything would work in our favor. I was confident, but also incredibly skeptical. To this point in time, I'm a spoiled sports fan. I've only known two, maybe three truly down years of Seahawks football where we were less than worthy of attention. Every other year we were either in the thick of contention for the Super Bowl or just outside of that. So. I couldn't have expected anything less than a hard-fought Seattle win, which I had been tailored to believe in with every victory in the last three years. And that's what we ended up getting almost. Super Bowl Sunday. The big game. One that would become the most watched television event in the history of American programming. The stage was set for a clash of titans. I arrived in Auckland downtown off the bus and met up with my friends on the waterfront to go to a local bar that was showing the game. It was bright, beautiful, sunny New Zealand summer. That bar was full. So we ended up spilling out into a really nice Irish bar, drinking Guinness and watching on a smaller TV through the first three quarters. And what a wonderful, excellent three quarters they were. The game was tight and scoreless through the first quarter with both teams trading defensive blows and stops all the way through. No one could get across midfield for long. Then the second quarter finally opened up the scoring and with just over a minute left in the half, New England held the lead 14 to seven. Seattle had the ball last and with precision and speed, drove down the field and scored a touchdown in the back of the end zone from Wilson to receiver Chris Matthews, who was a nobody before this game to tie it up going into halftime. It was at this point I started to get a little cocky. I was flying high and feeling myself to a degree that I decided to buy fried calamari rings and a pitcher for the whole table. This was a great game, no matter what the score was. And I wasn't going to waste it thinking too hard. So we drank, we ate, we laughed and we enjoyed a great halftime. Then the third quarter began and hope and ego became swollen in my heart like a balloon. And I made the big mistake of saying out loud, I think we got this. Immediately I knew it was a stupid decision. I messed with the juju. I messed it all up, but I was feeling myself. The Seahawks kicked a field goal to start the half and then drove down the field again to score a touchdown and take a strong 10 point lead into the final quarter of the game. I got so hyper that I paid the bill, ditched the Irish bar, and with the help of my friends, weaseled my way into the big sky sports bar with the massive and multiple television screens to watch as the Seahawks defense held their lead and properly kicked off a dynasty. And against Tom Brady? What a fucking time this was gonna be. But that's where the world began to crash. I heard Jerusalem bells a ringing, and Roman cavalry choirs a singing, But I didn't know what they meant when I heard it. The rain was about to fall before it really even began. In the fourth quarter, Tommy Terrific and his band of merry mountain men started to come back. Brady's history of late game heroics was starting its engines and we were his unfortunate target. With minutes of game time, Brady drove the pass down the field twice for two touchdowns, 14 points that put New England in the lead by a score of 28 to 24. With each pass and first down Brady knocked down, my head kept me thinking the worst was going to happen and my heart sped up. The Seahawks had to answer and we couldn't waste time doing it. It was time for one last drive. The Seahawks offense got the ball back in their hands with just over two minutes left in the game. They had to drive 80 yards down the field to write the story of their triumph. Wilson lobbed a pass to Lynch for a 31-yard completion. Pure excitement. Two incompletions, but then another converting pass to Ricardo Lockett. Here we go. Then... Wilson unleashed a long, smooth, beautiful bomb down the field to the right corner in front of the end zone. Jermaine Curse, the targeted receiver, the same guy who caught the pass that punched the Hawks' ticket to this game against the Packers in overtime, was blanketed in tight coverage by rookie defender Malcolm Butler. Curse got tripped up as the ball dipped down towards him in slow motion and fell to the ground as the ball seemingly bounced up, down, and around him for an incomplete pass, but then Oddly, he got up with the ball in his hand and started running towards the end zone, only to be pushed out by Butler. What the hell just happened? He dropped that pass, wait, what is he doing? The entire bar's jaws dropped as they watched the replay of the pass dropping down upon Curse in slow motion. The ball bounced off his hands, his body turned 180 degrees from momentum on his back, the ball bounced off his legs again and somehow secured the ball. Finally, untouched by Butler to end the play. He got up and started running the score, but was tackled just short. I still remember Chris Collinsworth, NBC's announcer, exclaiming, he did what? As the replay aired in front of 140 million eyeballs. Kurz had made the catch that put the Seahawks less than 10 yards away from the end zone. Everything was falling into place. The Seahawks were going to win this game. This was a no-brainer. The Patriots were gonna lose again, and this time my team was gonna be the culprit. This was the moment. This is it. Give the ball a couple of bursts up the gut with Lynch and end the game. The Seahawks sprinted down the field, got into position to snap the ball, handed it off to beast mode, and he got, oh, so close to just punching it in for the winning score. Two yards out from scoring the decisive touchdown to begin a new era of Seahawks excellence. At this point, the 26 seconds that were left on the clock felt like a formality. They felt like an inconvenience, like, oh, we'll just uh, use a few of those and take care of business, but then get your kickoff off and incomplete Hail Mary over with so we can celebrate and, and take the Lombardi trophy back to Seattle. Let's just get this over with. Russell Wilson went over to the sideline to discuss the next play briefly with Coach Carroll and went back to the offense to huddle, organize, and break. This was it. This is the moment where we become the big Huge heavies in the NFL. Here we go. Wilson set the line, called his audibles, watched as New England adjusted to him. He snapped the ball. He took three steps back. He watched the play develop, and Ricardo Lockett raced from the right side of the line to the left across the goal line and cocked the ball back and through. The pass looked routine, it looked practiced and easy like a drill they'd run 10,000 times in practice. Sure, I'm a little surprised they didn't run it with Lynch, but nothing looked wrong. It was straight, it was fast, and it was gonna get there. Then everything crashed. Lockett was suddenly clocked on the goal line by some defender and was falling through the air opposite of the direction he was running in. My heart immediately started to sink. He was flying away from the ball. And out of the tackle came New England defensive back Butler. Speed. the phenomenal play that wound up in Percy's arms, there are flags on the field for a celebration, amazing. The same Malcolm Butler who bungled the miraculous catch by Jermaine Kearse just two plays before, the same nobody, undrafted in 2014 and signed on the cheap by New England, blasted through Lockett and to the ball. Malcolm Butler caught it. He caught Russell Wilson's pass. He picked it off, intercepted, grabbed the turnover, and fell to the ground. The game was turned on its head and would never go back. I will never forget the flips that my heart did. From happiness to terror, horror, disbelief. Language had no meaning around me. It was all white noise. The color drained out of the room like it was poured out and into the abyss below my feet formed from despair and darkness I couldn't believe it I just I couldn't believe it the ball was right there Lockett was just about to catch it and it just it was over Butler had sealed the Patriots lead and victory in the closing seconds of the Super Bowl and with that moment The Seahawks' dream was over. I can remember my friend's hands on my shoulders that were draped with an Earl Thomas jersey. I know they were shouting consolations and trying to comfort me, but I couldn't make out the words. It didn't matter. When you can see victory in the hands of your own after so much investment of energy and emotion, that's all that matters. The belief in your team matters as much as the work the players put in. One will always benefit the other, and vice versa. And when everything boils down to one moment, one play, and one chance, that's the only thing in the world that matters. It's more focused than horse blinders. The world will crumble if what you want to happen doesn't happen. And that's how it felt for me. And I know I'm not alone. The rest of the game didn't matter. I prayed for a penalty flag on the play, a miracle that universe, shooting lightning down on the field and reversing time, anything. But of course, none of that happened. The Patriots, for the first time in 11 years, had won the Super Bowl. Tom Brady had reached greatest of all time, or GOAT, status and locked himself in as one of the greatest to ever play the game. Meanwhile, the Seahawks, and specifically Coach Pete Carroll, would be questioned and themselves wonder for the rest of the time why they wouldn't have called a run to Lynch their offensive V8 engine to more efficiently seal the game. After it was all officially over, I walked out of the bar and threw my jersey on the ground. I had never been so upset. I didn't even want to go have dinner with my buddies. I just went straight home to Sulk. I couldn't imagine being great company at that time. For a week, I wouldn't be able to shake the shock and pain of the image of Ricardo Lockett's body flying through the air and Malcolm Butler coming out, from behind him to catch the interception. Over and over again, it would play in my head, and I kept having to remind myself that it wasn't a dream, and eventually I would get over it like anything else in life, but to this day, I still avoid any clips from that Super Bowl. It actually wasn't until I decided to do this episode that I finally went back and watched the game in whole, and I'm never doing that again. I am not a masochist. (sighs) The NFL would never be the same again and certainly the Patriots and the Seahawks' destinies wouldn't either. The Patriots went on to 10 straight AFC Championship games and including Super Bowl 49, won three total titles in the 2010s, bringing Brady and Belichick's career count to six trophies, more than any other coach and player in NFL history. Brady is now the uncontested greatest quarterback in NFL history, Belichick its greatest coach, and the New England Patriots from 2001 to 2018 of the NFL's longest and arguably greatest dynasty. On the flip side, the Seahawks and the Legion of Boom defense would stay together as a whole core with Lynch, Sherman, Thomas, strong safety, Cam Chancellor, defensive ends Michael Bennett and Cliff Averill, and linebacker Bruce Irvin for one more year. The loss had a massive effect on the team's psyche and motivation, and the pain of the loss in the Super Bowl made Coach Carroll's rah-rah, positive leadership rhetoric almost mockingly ineffective, with bad feelings all around, and Seattle's 2012-15 core being called the Almost Dynasty by multiple sources. The team slowly dismantled itself through retirements, free agency, and plain old player releases, and has attempted to remodel its team around Wilson, who has become a perennial MVP candidate under center and a potential Hall of Famer, but no Super Bowls. I still love the Seahawks. I always will, and what I said before doesn't discount the fact that Seattle has stayed in contention for the playoffs every year except once since that tragedy in Arizona. But it's not the same. It's hard when you know it could have been so different. Pete Carroll, Marshawn Lynch, linebacker Bobby Wagner, Sherman, and Thomas were all recently voted as part of the NFL's All-Decade Team for the 2010s. As part of it, Coach Carroll spoke with NFL.com's Mike Silver about how hard it was to come back from that Super Bowl loss. Quote, I tried to just make sure that I was unwavering. So that was the challenge, to allow for the grieving and all of that, and then see what the issues were and then put it back together. It was a hard challenge. It was really hard on some of the players and some of us will never get over it, unquote. Grieving. Anytime I think about that game, I think grief, mourning even. And again, this all sounds really overdramatic to someone who hasn't invested in the game the same way as I and millions of others have, but you had to be there through the highs and lows, and only then would you understand the depth, tragedy, elation, and shock of what happened that night in Super Bowl 49. Okay. Well there's the end of that. I hope you all enjoyed that story. I know it was a little bit of a downer, but I thought it was really interesting and uh, I hope I hope I made it entertaining for all of you guys. so thanks for sticking around tuning in. Now I did want to just send you guys off with a little message of hope during all of this quarantine. A lot of what I'm seeing on social media right now is people you know experiencing their bad days. They're, they're having a little bit of a tough time as the slog continues. I know for sure, I see my staff and my friends who all work in the restaurant industry really starting to feel like it's all hopeless. Now, I just want to address that real quick, not by saying, hey, everything's gonna be all right, because I don't know, nobody does. This is a weird time and things are unpredictable and it's completely out of our control and it just is what it is right now. But what I do want to say is this, if you're having a bad day, You don't have to get yourself out of it. You don't have to constantly put effort into lifting your own spirits 100% of the time. I think it might actually be natural and okay for you guys, for everyone, to feel it, experience it, let it happen, let the bad feelings get out, let it just happen, be in a little bit of a depressive state for a little bit. It's okay, as long as you are feeling something, and that's the most important part of it that you feel something. Because if you're feeling something, it still means that you have your humanity in you. It still means that your heart works, that your brain works, that there is still blood pumping through your veins. This is a time when it is okay because so many things are out of our control. There's And, and when that happens, human beings tend to get lost in this in this weird sense of sorrow that is impossible to understand, navigate, and and get out of. It's okay to feel bad. It just is. And if anybody tells you, hey, you should just you know, think positive thoughts, like go for a run or blah, blah, blah. Those are people who are not feeling the way that you are. And maybe maybe just not necessarily at that time. I think it's really, really vital that we whatever emotions we're feeling at any given time, we just feel them. We don't try to bottle them up and send them down the river. We let them happen. We let them wash over us and and organically get out of it. I went through like a three-day tear of just feeling like absolute shite for no reason at all. Just because at some point it entered my mind that, oh, I can't go online and buy this thing right now because it's probably not fiscally responsible since, oh yeah, I don't have a job. And I felt horrible. I felt all over again the way I did when I got that email from my work that said, you've all been terminated. That feeling of depression and despair that felt horrible at the time for me, but I realized at some point I have a right to, I have a right to feel the way that I'm feeling because if you don't, you just, you lose your your emotional capacity. And you're going to need that when you go back out into the world when everything reopens. You're going to need that when you want to build relationships again. And I promise you, when this whole stay-at-home thing is over, the lockdown is over, and wait for your governor or mayor to say that before you start going out and start touching people, all right? You wait for those orders to be lifted. But when you go out and you have to build those relationships again, the world of relationships, the world at large that we are going to go back into is not going to be the same that it was when we first... We're, before all this happened, when we were trying to build relationships, it's gonna, gonna be completely different. People's sensibilities are different. People's feelings are different. People's way of life is gonna be different. And you're gonna have to have your emotional capabilities to be able to navigate that. It's really, really important that you you keep your core soft, keep your soul soft. I said that on the first episode and I'm saying it now and I'm gonna say it again and again and again until I hear people saying, I'm keeping my core soft. I'm trying to make sure all that gooey stuff inside is is working to its be- highest capacity. So let yourself feel the pain and the happiness and the joy and the loss and the craziness that's coming with this quarantine, with 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 this pandemic. Let it happen. And I promise you, you are going to feel so much better when you first step out into this brand new strange world than if you were to bottle everything up and let it out when you needed to be the most open. Letting it out when everybody gets out and letting the world see you just release it all is not as good as releasing it now in a way that's not detrimental to yourself or other people, and then going out there a fresh, brand new human. I sincerely believe that. And that's it for the nugget. So, I'm going to be coming back in the next couple of few days, hopefully not longer than a week this time, uh, with some other new material. Uh, We're going to be talking about uh, things that I've been doing around the house to stay busy. Uh, I'm going to be doing a review on the Star Wars The Clone Wars series, because that's something I've been binging, and that's something I actually feel like people should be checking out more, even if you're not a Star Wars fan, even if you're just... Like just a TV show fan. I think it's something that everybody should check out. And then I'm going to have another episode later on uh, talking about some more uh, real life stuff. So stick around for that. Until then, stay motivated, stay sharp, and I'll catch you on the flip. Peace out, people.